I was not very popular when I was a surgeon because I pulled out the scope at every emergency that I had. And the only thing that the anesthetists wanted is get home as soon as possible. And when they saw me <laughs> pulling out the scopes, they were like, oh, this is going to take a while. But, uh, but <laughs> yeah. you're exactly right. I mean, you have to practice. Don't, don't have them catch dust because otherwise you will never learn it. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and we are back with the Per Podcast. And this is the second episode that we have an amazing guest, Dr. Dave Tweet. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm great. It's great to be here. Yeah, you know, we had so many topics that we discussed in our previous one, which was a week ago. Uh, we talked about uh, feline lymphoma. We talked about other GI diseases. We talked about, uh, you know, how to take a biopsy through endoscopy. We talked about... Um, hepatic lipidosis but there are many many topics left and the first question i wanted to ask is uh, so what kind of procedures do you do the most when you use endoscopy uh the procedures that i do the most is gastrointestinal endoscopy okay so um gastric biopsies intestinal biopsies ileal biopsies and so forth the second most frequent procedure that I do, and this would be a combination of uh, canine and feline and other species as well, small species, is a rhinoscopy. Oh, wow. And it's very interesting in my experience that veterinarians either one don't have the appropriate equipment to do rhinoscopy or they feel very uncomfortable because they don't know the anatomy what to look for and so that is a very common uh procedure that we do and 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 both so with the gi endoscopy let's start there you are probably using a flexible scope for that and do you have a special scope for cats then Yes, uh, we do. Um, we do use flexible scopes. The ideal scope for a cat would probably be someplace in the range of five and a half to seven millimeters in diameter. Um, a length of a hundred centimeters in length, that, that's usually the average length for uh, a human endoscope. Uh, some of the veterinary endoscopes for the canine with, with the patients being very large are much longer in, in size. But um, uh, that is usually the diameter that we use and it uh, very easily can get through the pylorus into the intestine uh, with a scope like that. If you're using some of the larger human type scopes, the diameter may be uh, too large to get through the pylorus. Yeah, and, and and that's interesting because, you know, a lot of people always complain about that it's so difficult in the cat because everything is so small or small Ds. Uh, to get through the pylorus, do you have some tips for them how, how they can improve their success rate? Well, one is 
I think it's easier to endoscope a cat than a dog in getting through that pylorus because mm -hmm. it's kind of a straight shot right at the end of the antrum is the pylorus where in the canine it sometimes is offset and a little bit more difficult to get through. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that if anyone is starting out with wanting to do endoscopy, probably the most important thing is you take a, a course and learn the basic techniques of how to handle the scope, how to advance the scope, uh, what's normal, what's abnormal, and have a group of people that have a lot of experience um, help you through the way. And then after you take a course, then it's just practice. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing is that you don't let your flexible endoscope collect dust in the closet, but you use it. Yeah. And in doing so, you're going to get better and better. Yeah. I was not very popular when I was a surgeon because I pulled out the scope at every emergency that I had. And the only thing that anesthetists wanted is get home as soon as possible. And when they saw me <laughs> pulling out the scopes, they were like, oh, this is going to take a while. But, uh, but yeah. that's, you're exactly right. I mean, you have to practice. Don't don't have them catch dust because otherwise you will never learn it. So um, and we'll go, come back to the courses in, in a second. The second topic that you were talking about is rhinoscopy. Obviously, that is using a rigid scope, correct? Yes, it is. And um, there are various types of rigid scopes that are available. I think for a cat, no larger than a scope that is 2.7 millimeters in diameter. And there are some now uh, uh, rigid scopes that are even smaller in diameter where um, you can get nice biopsy size and you can inf infuse uh, saline if you have you know, a lot of mucus and blood and so forth. And so the scopes now that we have available are, are very prime for evaluating uh, cat upper airway. Yeah, yeah, that, that's amazing. And and then when you do cat upper airway, obviously you need to anesthetize or sedate these cats because they don't allow that uh, in in a, a, a real a patient. Are you using any fluids or are you just doing a dry? Um, I used to use fluids routinely, but a very good friend of mine, Brendan McKiernan, who's probably mm -hmm. the grandfather of respiratory endoscopy um, has taught me to at least look dry first mm -hmm. and then if there's a lot of mucus and debris or blood uh, then you would uh, infuse with uh, saline mm -hmm. uh, to kind of clear away the uh, upper airway it's important that you have a good uh, tight endotracheal um, tube for that and many people will often even pack um with uh, some sponges in the back of the throat in some of these patients yeah because you don't want to have them aspirate uh, so if the tube is not blown up uh, enough then these cats might aspirate and then the you know the cure is probably worse than the disease that you were looking for but yeah absolutely yeah and and so the rhinoscopy um obviously when you work with patients that small you have to have a different set for that too compared with larger animals correct absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, probably a lot of people, we haven't talked about uh, your laparoscopic uh, 
techniques and you have done that for many many years uh next to liver biopsies and and puncture of the gallbladder what other techniques or what other things do you do um well first i have to classify that i am an internist and <laughs> so i'm not a surgeon so uh some of the things that uh veterinary surgeons are doing with rigid scopes uh is just you know almost blows your mind as far mm -hmm. as things that can be done um, you know, removing kidneys and spleens and gastropexies and, and so forth. So I usually do diagnostics and my diagnostics are, um, mostly liver, pancreas, kidney, lymph node. You know, I've had mm. some that, yeah. uh, we had to get lymph node biopsies on. Um, and so those are probably the procedures that I do most commonly. And do you prefer to do the kidney biopsy um, uh, through endoscopy or blind? Because a lot of people do just the true cut biopsy of the kidney blind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's your preference? Um, I like to look at the kidneys, pick the kidney that I want to biopsy. Mm -hmm. And so I use uh, uh, like a true cut type biopsy needle, but I direct it down to the kidney through um, my using my laparoscope and i try to get mostly cortex so i direct my needle so that i get cortex because that's where all the action is and yeah. you want to look at the glomeruli and so forth and one of the things that uh kidneys tend to bleed quite a bit and mm. so one of the advantages of laparoscopy as well is i can take a little palpation probe and have it sitting right there by the kidney and as soon as i take a biopsy i can um, apply pressure mm -hmm. over the area um, to uh, stop the bleeding with pressure yeah the interesting thing is if you look at the anatomy of the kidney uh, there's some really nice vessels running on the uh, outside of the kidney and if you stick through those they can bleed quite a bit absolutely yeah that's absolutely. Uh, that, that is for sure so now I'm a veterinarian that has listened to this podcast and is getting more and more excited about endoscopy because all the things that you could do, we haven't even talked about your urinary tract, you know, colonoscopy, but there's so much things that you can do with flexible and rigid scopes. Um, where should they go for more information or training? I know you yourself have a fantastic training center at Colorado State. Yeah, at Colorado State University, we've got the... Uh, Translational Medicine Institute. Uh, and part of that is for research and comparative research, but a big area is teaching minimally invasive procedures. So GI endoscopy, various types of laparoscopy, laparoscopic surgery, and so forth. And so we give courses throughout the year uh, in teaching veterinarians one uh, who have never touched a scope before, and then we also have advanced classes as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things that we have coming up this September is a feline endoscopy course. And as oh, wow. far as I know, it is the only feline-only uh, endoscopy course. Um, you know, our instructors have been told not to say the d word at all and <laughs> like that. and uh it is uh partially uh 
uh, supported by AAFP. Oh, wonderful. So if you are an AAFP member, uh, you will get a discount it, uh, in taking this course. Oh, that's and, awesome. and so um, we're going to teach everything from uh, flexible GI to respiratory to urinary to otoscopy. Uh, which we use with rigid scopes and yep. um, and then also laparoscopy. So oh, wow. uh, it's a it's a week long course and it covers everything that we clinic we do in the clinic uh, here at Colorado State University. I'm getting I, excited. Excited. Yeah. Where can yeah. I sign up? <laughs> you can go online to uh, uh, CSUVETCE. Uh -huh. dot com so it's just csu colorado state university vet ce.com and you can get information there you can also i believe there's information on the aafp website as well yeah that's great information because you're right normally courses are a lot of the d and then a little bit uh of the cat at the end uh so they explain everything with the the d in mind and then they say okay you have to adapt this to the cat but a course that's fully focused on the cat that's i've not heard about that so that's that's amazing that's yeah, fantastic i think I, th I think it's the first course that way and it, we actually even in spite of covid you know we had to postpone the course uh, a couple of times but yeah. uh we have a good number of, of registrants from all over the world coming so yeah i bet i bet yeah. and 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 so how much does the cost uh, the course cost so, oh it's okay oh i don't know yeah i i think it made for a week long i think it's in the three thousand range yeah 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 so and then uh, and the colorado is obviously beautiful the i have to say i was there uh, this week and the the surroundings and the building and the equipment is just so impressive. Yes, so. we we have um, uh, a good support team, and uh, if you do come, it will make your your uh, trip enjoy very enjoyable. No problems at all. Next to the fact that Fort Collins is a fun town and there's lots of yeah. things to do. So, and it's close to the mountains, so you can hike. So there's lots of good things why you should do this. But I do, do and so the TMI was built when and finished when, Dave? It was finished in uh, 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, it was built for a couple of years. It was built with private funds. Mm -hmm. uh, in donations and uh we were just up and running and then covid kind of put a crunch in things and yeah. uh we're getting back to up and running again yeah it's a state-of-the-art facility and i think it's also because you know the equipment that you have is just amazing you have two r1s there which is this special or that's designed uh to do these uh, minimal invasive uh, procedures and so uh, as, as as a person that loves uh, endoscopic surgery i was very jealous of all the <laughs> things that i saw float by and then you also teach human surgeons there don't you yeah we do um we personally don't teach the human surgeons no, no, although, I oh, although i think some veterinarians could probably do a good job te teaching some of the human surgeons because they're <laughs> so good at uh, these procedures yeah. but um uh, uh we supply the uh facility Mm -hmm. for them to um, train individuals doing various types of things. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. I love that. All right, last topic to talk about is uh, after we talked about the courses and and what we can do with endoscopic procedures is uh, the World Veterinary Endoscopy Congress that was uh, at Colorado State at the TMI uh, from I think Monday to Wednesday. So, what were your main key takeaways there? Well, my main key takeaways um, are, and this is. This is a meeting, it was a world meeting where people were presenting abstracts from all over the world. A lot of it was virtual, but a lot of it was in person as well. We had um, some keynote speakers. Uh, one of the things that I think is coming in veterinary medicine is simulation, where you're using simulators to learn how to do various types of procedures. And that's the way now uh, physicians learn, they learn on simulators uh, before they even uh, touch a person. And um, that is something that I think is in the forefront for veterinary medicine as well. And so um, that's a good way to learn a lot of these procedures. And then the other takeaway, we had some uh, uh, physicians that talked about some of the things that they're doing in pediatric surgery. And although I was very impressed with the things that they did, I think that there are veterinary surgeons that are doing equally as fantastic stuff uh, in our animal patients as well. And so from way back in the days where I was just taking biopsies, to today where uh, it's just unbelievable the amount of things that are going on and, and the potential for things in the future where it is less stress, uh, uh, faster healing with our patients using uh, endoscopic procedures is just mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah, no, true, true. And 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 just go to give an ex example, you know, if you become a pilot, you don't fly a plane until you have passed all the uh, virtual reality or AR tests that you need to do in these uh, these mock-up. Uh, uh, and so that's probably the future of human surgery and veterinary surgery too, that you have to train and then you have to pass to be able to land the plane or do the procedure before you start working on animals. And that was a little different than in our time when, you know, I remember in, uh, and I was a big timestamp in the nineties when this became a, a procedure that people started liking, you know, we kind of reinvented the wheel because we had no clue. Um, we had some help from our human surgeons that were in there too. But I remember the first, uh, spay that i did uh, was two and a half hours which you know the last spay i did was probably 20 minutes or less um, yeah. in in the dog so you you do need to you do need to have that practice i also think that uh, the the next generations i mean they're ready to do it because they have been growing up with uh, all these games and and the dexterity uh, that you need with both your hands because i think the most difficult part of doing endoscopic surgery is that your dominant hand is not the only hand that needs to be dominant both hands need to be as dominant and and so working with the two hands in unison uh, is something that 
is is you do it all the time but when you look at it doing it it's suddenly much more difficult so the two tips that i have is start eating with knife and fork and doing a lot of uh, computer games <laughs> computer that, games right yeah that those are the two things uh, that that can help yeah. you yeah absolutely and you know as far as the simulation and i know you're very involved with this as well um there's a group of people veterinarians that are now looking at trying to get models, simulation models, uh, specifically for veterinary medicine. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that's, that. I think that that is great because, uh, you know, the simulation models that we have are mainly for human medicine. And then, uh, you know, there are difference there. Although I think the hand-eye coordination and and the fact that you have to look at the screen instead of at your hands, which right. for us surgeons and maybe internal medicine people too, we normally look at our hands what we're doing. So that's right. that, that reinforcement that we get, and you don't have that. You look at the screen, and whatever your hands are doing, it's in space. So you can put them on the back and do it because you can't see them anyway. So that's something that makes this uh, a lot more difficult. Um, I, I also was impressed that the human surgeon that did the, the pediatric surgery and mainly pediatric thoracic surgery, which is even more mind boggling. So this, these are kids that are two weeks, three weeks old, very small. Uh, and he did all these procedures that were minimal invasive. Um, he said that he was very impressed in what, what uh, veneerians did too. So he was like, he had no clue that we were this far with the procedures that we do. And we deal with small cavities all the time. So it's not yeah. like, because when he showed the the little baby and he was talking how small it was and he had this two and three millimeter ports, I was like, a cat is smaller than that. And we yeah. do that all the time. So, you know, you should come to us for, <laughs> for practicing because those cavities look pretty big as a matter of yeah. fact to me. So, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, so that, that was really good. I, I, I really enjoyed, uh, I, I, I love the fact that endoscopy is now done all over the world. It used to be there were a couple of centers in the US uh, and, and obviously the center in, in Holland, but now it seems to be, uh, there were a lot of Japanese lectures that were fantastic. There were people from anywhere in the world that were giving these lectures. Uh, it was quite impressive. So it, it's a technique that really is becoming mainstay for a lot of procedures. Oh, absolutely. It, it really is. It, and I'm astounded by some of the people that are in maybe countries that aren't quite as well developed as the United States that are doing fantastic, uh, fantastic things. So, yeah. 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 So the, the, the human surgeon, the thoracic surgeon was saying that although uh, they did these very specific uh, normal cuts in, in babies, that these babies, when they grew up, still had abnormalities because of muscle contraction and that sort of things. And that was the main reason for him to develop these minimal invasive techniques. And, you know, we never look at dogs and cats when, you know, what the effects are of a big incision. We just tend to make them and then don't 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 worry about them and obviously uh, pain management is so much easier when you do a a minimal invasive incision and and i i think uh my aha moment was my first uh thoracoscopic pericardectomy which is a long 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 time ago um when i saw that dog after we did the procedure it was the first one took a little bit longer of time so we were worried about the anesthesia but the dog woke up and it was just unbelievable he was ready to go home and normally when we split open the chest or we do a lateral thoracotomy 
these animals it takes days for them to recover from that mm -hmm. so it's it's, right. it's and i think it's now standard of care so if you yeah, do a absolutely yeah and and so that that's fantastic um yes so any yeah so we're at the end again things are going so fast but uh any other wisdoms that you want to tell us our our feline audience uh any other wisdoms to tell you well since the focus has sort of been on the endoscopy i think that um you know people that want to get involved you can start out small and maybe get one type of uh, endoscope. And then as you gain confidence and skill, then you can build on that and you can, you know, increase your equipment to be able to do um, almost any type of procedure. So I think it's just getting started. And so taking uh, a course, uh, going in and watching your local physician do uh, procedures and see what they do um, and getting the minimum equipment and then building as you uh, expand and as your practice expands. We have clients now that come specifically requesting minimally invasive procedures to be done mm -hmm. um, because they know that that's what's happening in human medicine and they want their pet to get the same type of treatment. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And I can tell you, it's very addictive. When you start with one procedure, you want to do the next one. So it's, it's a great, great opportunity also to expand your knowledge and expand your skills. So uh, go for it. Thank you, Dave. This was fantastic. Uh, thanks yeah. for being on the show with us. Uh, thank you also from Dr. Susan, uh, who says hello. Um, and this was the PER podcast. Uh, if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. Uh, you can find more information at perpodcast.net. And we have a handle at perpodcast uh, for Instagram and any social media platform you're on. So we would love to see you back next week where we have our new guest. Uh, but before we do that, I say a great thank you to Dr. Tave Tweet. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. It's been fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. 
Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.